This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Every day seems to bring a fresh assault of bad news. Rage, wars, deep-seated divisions in government and among the populace. And of course, there are the threats to democracy. Indeed, a threat to the existence of the glorious experiment we call America. But how about this? The highest paid subscription for a newsletter on Substack is by a renowned historian. Yes, apparently we are hungry for analysis of current events within the larger context of American history. This is heartening. The historian Heather Cox Richardson, professor of history at Boston College, author of six previous books, and the co-host of the recently concluded podcast, Now and Then, that Heather did with her fellow historian, Joanne Freeman, has now written a superb and even optimistic book titled Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Heather, I am utterly delighted to welcome you to Just the Right Book. And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, this book is amazing, and I think it ought to be required reading for all Americans. This moment in our history, we appear to be in a very perilous state with more division than ever. And I wonder if we could start by you talking about what's fed this division, and is it in fact unprecedented? Well, let's start with that latter part. Is it unprecedented? No. We certainly have had times in our history, the 1850s, the 1890s especially, the 1920s and the 1930s, in which the country seemed hopelessly divided. And we came through those times. What has led us to this moment now are two things. And I will give you the first, which is not a surprise because it's in the book. And that is the idea since the advent of the New Deal in 1933, of a new government that works for the people by regulating business, providing a basic social safety net like social security, promoting infrastructure like roads and schools and hospitals, and protecting civil rights, especially civil rights in the states, sparked a backlash from people who didn't like that idea of a new government. They liked an old government like we had in the 1920s that didn't do any of those things that essentially turned the government over to big business so that people could accumulate as much wealth as they possibly could, which, of course, led to all the capital in the country moving upward. They wanted to go back to that. And really, since the night about 1937, our American politics have been centered around a fight over whether the government should, in fact, do all those things that people like FDR and Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican who took office in 1953, wanted it to do, or should we go back to that 1920s government that simply permitted businessmen to act however they wanted? But the other thing, of course, that has gotten us into the mess we're in today is the advent of social media and the incredible speed with which information and disinformation can, can spread around the country. The other element that I thought, you know, as a bookseller, I really appreciated the power of your foreword not only because those pages should be plastered everywhere, but it also makes it easy to sell the book. And in that foreword, you state, democracies die more often through the ballot box than at gunpoint. And you raise the question, which seems to me foundational, why would voters give away their power to autocrats who inevitably destroy their livelihoods and sometimes execute their neighbors. So how do you explain that dichotomy? It seems to me, as you say, foundational. And I have to set it up a little bit because that's not the book I intended to write. Mm. This book was intended to be 
30 short essays answering questions that people ask me all the time on one specific topic. But when I put that book aside and picked it up again, what it told me was, in fact, exactly what you established there. The idea behind the book is how democracies die, or rather how they are killed. And what I came to believe was that the reason that people move away from a democracy and vote to put a strong man in its place is because they become convinced by the use of words, by language, by narrative, to believe in something that isn't real. And they begin to vote based on those things that are not real. And pretty soon what they discover is they have empowered a single person, a single strong man to take over their democracies. And, you know, then they very frequently are panicked and want desperately to get their democracies back. But usually by then it's too late. And, you know, you say in the foreword that, which also seems very applicable to now, is that authoritarians rise when economic, social, political, or religious change makes members of a formally powerful group feel as if they have been left behind. And their frustration makes them vulnerable to leaders who promise to make them dominant again. Yes. Well, that That concept is not unique to me. Actually, I'm drawing there from Hannah Arendt, who was a great scholar of totalitarianism, Mm. and from Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman in San Francisco in the immediate post-World War II period, who thought a lot about the rise of dictators and people like Joseph Heller, the writer, and George Orwell as well, who talked about the importance of language. But one of the very important things that Hoffer did was he said, you know, let's stop thinking all the time about Hitler and Mussolini and where they came from, because there was a whole cottage industry of books about those two people or people like that. He said, we have to understand that every generation has wannabe strong men. But the real question is why people follow them. And so Hoffer stepped back and he said, let's take a look at the conditions that you need to have people follow an authoritarian. So just as a, as a, as a thought experiment here, imagine taking the kind of language that former President Donald Trump dropped on Veterans Day about getting rid of what he called vermin, mm. uh, which are his political opponents. Imagine that language in 1950. It it, it was simply not something that Americans would rally behind. They would recognize it as something that was un-American. But what happened is in the 40 years between 1981 and the rise of Donald Trump in 2015 as a political figure, we got both the language that said to a number of American voters on the Amer- on, in the Republican Party, you know, the only reason that you feel like you're losing ground is because of those people over there. At the same time that we also got a bunch of laws that concentrated wealth at the very top of the economy and hollowed out the middle class. So at the very time this this large group of people is feeling as if they are falling behind, and every statistic will tell you that they are falling behind, you also got political leaders telling them that the reasons that they were falling behind was not because of the tax cuts, for example, and not because of the cuts to business regulation, and not because of the cuts to education and cuts to the basic social safety net, cuts to infrastructure, The reason they argued that that group felt like it was being left behind was because of people, black people, brown people, women who wanted to work outside the home, who were asking for the government to provide things for them that would cost tax dollars paid for by white people to help those undeserving groups. And that those two things combined created this disaffected population that was ready to to jump and pay Mm -hmm. attention when Donald Trump appeared on the scene. And and fit right into this definition that we just talked about, where members of a formally powerful group feel as if they've been left behind. So much of, not much, but aspects of your book take us back to our history. And I love the way you explained the difference of the rights that are protected by the Constitution versus the rights protected by the Bill of Rights versus the rights protected by the Declaration of Independence. So would you share with our listeners 
which rights are protected by each of those documents and which of those rights and therefore documents had priority at various times in our history? Well, it's a truism in American history that if you have rights, you stand on the Constitution. And if you want rights, you stand on the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. And the reason for that is that the Declaration of Independence establishes a set of principles on which a government that is not a monarchy should stand. That is, the founders didn't really know what they were doing, right? They were doing something incredibly radical. So in the Declaration of Independence, they make two major statements about what government should look like. They say that all men are created equal, and they take that as a mathematical proposition. And they say that governments rest on the consent of the governed. Now, of course, we know now how constrained that first vision was, but the principle that people in a polity should be equal is one that was expandable to include everybody in American society, not simply those propertied white men who articulated it at first. Now, so we have the principles there in the Declaration. We also have the Constitution, and the Constitution is the framework for the body of laws under which that government will operate. It had many different moving parts, some of which we've discarded, many of which we've added on to, but that is the basic framework for our government. And one of the key things it does is it protects property. So as I say, if you are somebody who is trying to protect your right to property, for example, you're going to rest on the Constitution. And that's going to include people like human enslavers, as well as virtually everybody in society who is interested in protecting property. But the Constitution, crucially, has been expanded dramatically throughout its history. And, and I'll talk about the Bill of Rights in a second. But of course, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which is ratified in 1868, dramatically changes the nature of American government by vesting in the federal government the power to protect rights in the states. And that's going to be a crucial aspect of our government from 1868 on. And of course, it's very much on the table now, today. But then we have the Bill of Rights. And the reason I talked as much as I did about the Bill of Rights is because since the, the 1980s, really, there's been an emphasis in this country on the idea that the Bill of Rights convey individual rights. So, for example, that the Second Amendment can, conveys the rights of individuals to own guns. But historically, that's simply not the case. The first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were designed to hold back the government. They weren't designed to give rights to individuals. They were designed to hold back what the government could do. And while that seems at first to be splitting hairs, it's really not. Because when you're trying to constrain the government from things it can do, you're doing something very different than actually giving rights to individuals. And how we understand things like the Second Amendment and even the First Amendment going forward really depend on understanding that difference about what the government is allowed to do versus what rights are conveyed in the government to individuals. So thank you for that, because I think that as we continue this conversation and as someone reads the book or even thinks about current affairs, those constructs make a big difference. Like when I read the book and I understand that the Bill of Rights was actually preserving rights that the government couldn't impose. It was, you know, as you say, it restrained them, which is sort of the inverse, I think, of how we think about it. And it made me wonder, would the 14th Amendment have been as possible were it not for the Declaration of Independence? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Okay, so the answer to that straight up is no. But there's a very important distinction there that you just made with what's happening with the Bill of Rights. Because what happens, if you remember, coming out of the American Revolutionary War, which is actually distinct from what the founders called the revolution, which they said was in men's minds. The Revolutionary War follows that. What we get first is the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation were a confederation of states. And this, literally, the articles start with we, the, the states. And the states retain the majority of the power. And the federal government was extraordinarily weak. It couldn't impose penalties on the states for not paying tax levies, for example, to fund the government. It didn't really have control 
over trade. There were a number of ways in which essentially this is a very loose confederation of states, and it, it basically started to fall apart really quickly. That's where we get the Constitution. So the framers who make the Constitution insist on having a really strong federal government, and they're very clear on that. Madison says in a number of places, uh, James Madison, who is one of the great minds behind the Constitution, in a number of places, make sure that the federal government can override the states. But in order to get states and state leaders to sign on to the Constitution, they needed to give them some proof that the federal government would not, in fact, become essentially an empire that would crush the states. So that's the first 10 amendments to the the Constitution. And that's why they're known as the Bill of Rights. They are designed to say, hey, we did construct this really strong federal government, but we promise it's not going to do things like come down on the press although later on it's going to, it gets pushed back on that. Take away your right to the, to have a state militia. It's not going to do these things that you're extremely concerned about. So that, I think, is a real, you have to remember the articles and how very concerned the framers were about the, the looseness of the articles, how strong they made the federal government, and then the Bill of Rights fits into that as a way to hold back that strong federal government a bit. But the 14th is my favorite amendment. Everybody's got a favorite amendment, right? And the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is, in fact, coming out of a period in which Abraham Lincoln has really deliberately made a stand on the Declaration of Independence. So the going into the Civil War, the elite enslavers in the American South literally said, there's a very famous speech on the floor of the Senate in 1858 by a senator from South Carolina named James Henry Hammond, in which he says, listen, I don't care if 99% of the American people want you to do something. In this case, they were talking about, for example, a road across the Cumberland Gap to be funded by the federal government. And he said, listen, I don't care if 99% of the American people want that. You can't do that because the Constitution says all it can do is to protect property. And anything that is not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution has no, no standing at all. And what that would mean, of course, is that the elite enslavers were going to be able to continue to amass property and continue to take over the American government. Now, Abraham Lincoln has a very different idea about the way the government should work. We have fragments of his writing where he talks. You can see him thinking through the question of what a government should do. And quickly, he comes to recognize in the 1850s that, in fact, the United States government is being perverted by those elite enslavers who insist that, for example, the federal government can't keep human enslavement out of the American West. And what he starts to say is, wait a minute, we're not radical in wanting to stop this spread of enslavement. You are radical because you are overturning the Declaration of Independence. And we, those of us who are trying to protect the idea of equality in the United States and protect the idea that the government should represent all of us, we are the true conservatives. So he begins to base his concept of government on the Declaration of Independence. Of course, most famously in the Gettysburg Address of 1863, in which he says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. By now, it's not a mathematical constant. It's a proposition. Mm -hmm. But he is deliberately there tying the formation of the American government, not to the Constitution. Four score and seven years ago was 1776. And that idea that the federal government, a strong federal government, should protect rights within the states comes from that same impulse that Lincoln articulated and then, of course, embodied in the government while he was president. So, Heather, that is a perfect segue into the next stage of what we've witnessed, which is this ongoing battle of the state's rights versus federal rights. So we watched Roe get overturned in, by Dodd by actually saying the federal government doesn't have the right to decide this. We are going to put it back to the states. And then two minutes later, they turn around and decide that New York State cannot legislate their own control over gun laws, which I'm not a lawyer, but that looks a little antithetical or as 
someone might say, talking out of both sides of your mouth. So where do you see this battle between state and federal rights adding to this moment that we're witnessing? So let's start with where we are now and how we got here. The way we got to this new focus on what people who, for example, formed the Federalist Society in the 1980s talked about as judicial activism is from the use of the 14th Amendment by the Supreme Court beginning in the 1950s, quite dramatically with Brown versus Board of Education, which overturns segregation in the public schools, using the 14th Amendment to say the federal government must protect civil rights in the states. And that in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s was the way that the courts managed to guarantee that there would be equal rights in the states. Really big deal there. You know, people have the right to contraception, for example. They have the right to marriage equality. They have the right to abortion. They have a right to to desegregation. You know, all of those aspects of protecting civil rights that really have been central to the formation of modern America. People who didn't like that began to argue that this was judicial activism. And what they said was that these were judges making the law while voters had not agreed to those things. And they begin to argue for throwing all of these things back to the states, to go back to this period before you had decisions like Brown versus Board of Education. And the, the trick to that, though, is what has always been the trick to states' rights. And that is ever since Andrew Jackson in the 1820s and the 1830s began to articulate an ideology of states' rights, it was always a way to say, we don't like what the majority of Americans are doing, so we're going to do what we want in our own states. And here's the, the, the real kicker to that. Throwing things back to the states, to me, and believe me, I went down such a rabbit hole on this a few years ago, reading everything I could get my hands on from people like Justice Antonin Scalia. The trick is that the state legislatures also decide who gets to vote in those states. Mm. So by insisting on states' rights at the same time that you get to decide who gets to vote, You are essentially saying that you don't have to pay attention to the idea of civil rights, for example, or of economic rights. That's another really big reason that we that a really big thing in in states rights. And this is the reason that we got uh, state senators elected not by the state legislatures, but rather at large in the early 20th century, because state legislatures had all been bought up by big business. So the conjunction there of, hey, it should all go to the states. And the states get to pick who gets to vote. Seems to me like it should be a really red flag for anybody trying to believe that this would be a better step toward democracy, the way, for example, Justice Scalia talks about. That being said, of course, in our very large country, we have room for federalism. We have room for places where the state is powerful and where the federal government is powerful. But until we resolve who gets to vote in the states and make that universal, I think we've got a really big problem with the concept of states' rights. So that's very helpful, and we'll come back to the role that people can take. While we're on this notion of minority rule, in a way, as you talked about by giving the states the right and the states determining who can vote, I'd like you to spend just a couple of minutes on the genesis of the Electoral College, because its origins, which you'll explain, made sense, but Today, doesn't it undermine the full notion of representation and democracy? And how do you fix that at this point? So I just love these questions, Roxanne. Nobody ever asks this sort of thing, which is, uh, you can tell by how I'm like sitting up and getting all excited. This is my happy place. So the Electoral College, remember, these guys, and there aren't that many of them, 
have never built a government like this. They are building this government. And, and honestly, sometimes in my head, I think of it as like pixie sticks where they're going, well, if we move this, we got to move this. And, and they're trying to build something. And one of the things they're very concerned about is they are concerned about the idea First of all, the the rise of a dictator. They're very concerned that you're going to get a strong man coming and taking over the country. So they want to guard against that. And they also have to deal with the fact that there is not good communication among the different colonies or states at that point. In order for information to travel from one place to another, it's usually going to go by boat along the coastline, which means that people in the West don't have much access to it, the West of those states, I mean. and um, Or it's going to go by horseback, which is even slower than boats. Boats are actually fairly, fairly fast in this era. But it's also going to have to travel by letter and it's going to have to travel by newspapers. But we don't have modern newspapers yet. We have uh, what is we think of them as sort of sheets of paper that have listed on them everything an educated man should know. So we mm. don't have like Listicles. breaking news. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like, you know, the the prince of Austria died last year mm-hmm. as opposed to here's a breaking story. It's all more sort of things one should know, you know, and I put it in that kind of language on purpose. But what this means is how on earth are you going to choose a, a president? Because you don't know, if you're living in Georgia, you don't know who the smart men are in Connecticut. And if you're you know, living in Connecticut, you have no idea what's going on in North Carolina. So what they decided to do was to create a system whereby in each state, voters, and again, that's going to be a small proportion, women aren't going to vote. In most states, there's a caveat there, women did vote in New Jersey very briefly, but but black men can't vote. I mean, certainly brown men can't vote. Indigenous Americans rarely can vote, you know. So it's a very small group of people. But what they're going to do is they're going to vote for electors. And these are going to be men well-known in their communities who will do the right thing. That is, they will all get together and they will have this meeting and they will talk to each other about who they think is qualified to be the the next chief magistrate. And they set it up in such a way that generally they didn't really think that these people were going to come up with one person. They'd come up with a few people and then it would go to the House of Representatives where each state would get one vote. And that's how they would sort of make sure there was layer upon layer of uh, of breaks, if you will, so that you didn't get some, you know, upstart crow, if I can take something from another country in a, in a not dissimilar time. And the problem with this system appeared almost immediately. And that's that Thomas Jefferson, who is from Virginia, and Virginia in the early constitution has a gazillion electoral votes because they're the guys who write the constitution. They're the, as soon as we get a census, the number of electoral votes that Virginia is going to get is going to drop dramatically. But in that first iteration after the constitution is in place, Virginia is going to have a lot of electoral votes. So immediately in 1796, Thomas Jefferson recognizes that if he had gotten all of the votes from Virginia, he would have won the presidential election. So in 1800, he convinces Virginia not to split their electoral votes the way that people like Madison intended, but rather to give them on the basis of winner take all. With that idea, instantly other states have to follow suit or their own favorite sons won't stand a chance. So very quickly after 1800, all of the states flip to the idea of winner take all in the electoral vote. And the problem with that, of course, just to, to, to fast forward, right now we only have Nebraska and Maine as states that split their electoral votes and they of course have very few of them. But very quickly, we we get the problem of the fact that presidential elections, because of winner take all, are going to come down to the states that have a lot of electoral votes and that are swing states. And then, of course, you get the problem we have nowadays, where essentially political fights or presidential fights are fought out in, you know, four or five states. Immediately, as soon as this happened, Madison was beside himself and he wanted to amend the constitution to say, wait a minute, you can't do that. But of course he never managed to get that amendment to the constitution through. He wanted to go back to representational divisions of the electoral votes. Now then we have another problem and that's that in 1929, Congress capped the number of people in the house of representatives. And when they did that, it 
artificially really decrease the number of electoral votes that places like California or Florida or Texas or New York should have. And that's something else that needed that needs to be fixed. So yes, we do in fact have the problem now that the Electoral College really pushes the idea of a political minority ruling over a political majority. And that is a huge problem for a democracy. Nobody's going to want to overturn it right now because the people who are benefiting from it, the radical right, are simply going to insist that any kind of revision of it is uh, an attack on their rights. But it does seem to me that at least in the short term, you could make a very strong argument to say, okay, you want to keep the Electoral College? Fine. Let's go back to what it was supposed to be, which is representational so that we do in fact split our electoral votes. And then all of a sudden, virtually every state in the union is in play and everybody gets to be listened to. And I think things would change in a real hurry. And that's conceivable, that change. I don't know that anybody's tried it, but it certainly is a lot more conceivable than saying, let's get rid of the Electoral College, Mm. although I happen to be somebody who believes we should. I'm just talking about what is politically possible in the next few years. So let's let's move on. We have sort of a grounding in, you know, history in 35 minutes. And let's go on to what we're confronted with now. So you in the book describe Trump as more salesman than politician, which I think is a brilliant statement. And one of the questions that is often asked today is, is Trump cause or effect? And you also mention in the book that by 2016, the Economist Intelligence Unit downgraded the U.S. from a full democracy to a flawed democracy. So let's just start with what fed that. So there's almost a cottage industry in this country of arguing about whether or not Trump is simply a continuation of what came before or if he is something new altogether. And I like to joke that because I'm a Libra, I say both. Trump is definitely a reflection of the language that Republican politicians had been using since at least 1968, in which they were arguing that this government that I described before that regulates business, helps with social welfare, promotes infrastructure, and protects civil rights, is redistributing wealth generally from the haves, who are white people with property, to the undeserving poor. And those are going to be people of color and feminist women, which you could also unpack as well. So that idea is really articulated and and claimed most fully by Richard Nixon after the Kent State shooting in May of 1970, when he recognizes that he's got to pull voters back toward him because he's in real trouble. He starts to lose his base, his middle-class voting base after the Kent State shooting. So they, in, in the Nixon administration, decide to engage in what they call positive polarization. They deliberately want to rip the country in two because they're going to convince their voters that they need to stand behind Nixon because of those people, although they're really not articulate yet about who those people are, are are challenging and are threatening the United States. That language, of course, is something that Ronald Reagan is going to pick up really dramatically with his welfare queen imagery. George H.W. Bush is going to tap into it with the Willie Horton ads. But you can see it becoming more and more extreme as the American people don't like the policies that the Reagan Republicans are calling for. You know, they don't like the idea of tax cuts on the very wealthy. They don't like the slashing of social services. They don't like the idea of losing infrastructure. And as it seems as if that ideology is going to be challenged at the ballot box by voters, the Republican Party as early as 1986 begins to engage in voter suppression and by 2010 in a really serious way with gerrymandering, the idea that they can choose their own voters. And that's what The Economist is looking at when they talk about America being a flawed democracy, because by 2015, even before the rise of Donald Trump, it was no longer possible in a number of states for opponents of the Republicans to have a a, a free and fair say in their elections. And of course, at the national level, we had had a number of ways in which our democracy 
is beholden to a minority. And the real example of that in that period was things like the filibuster at the Senate, which is a way for a very small minority simply by saying they're going to oppose something to make sure that that can't get through. And that was a series of changes that went through in the traditional filibuster in the 1970s. So rather than somebody standing up and having to talk for a long period of time, that's all the filibuster is. It just means I refuse to shut up. Yeah. They um they they made it so you could just say you were going to do that. So that's what the economist is talking about when they talk about America being a flawed democracy. But then of course we get into Trump, who picks up those voters, picks up the benefits of that electoral college, picks up the benefits of that gerrymandering, and it comes into power. And then he turns those who adhere to that ideology into a movement, into something very different than they had been even in 2015. So Heather, I want to make sure that we save the last 10 minutes of our conversation to talk about the possibility of an optimism. But if you would take the next few minutes, which is going to, when I ask this question, you're going to, you know, say, I can't do that. But You've explained to us that there was a movement brewing and Trump knew how to plug into that, given that he's a salesman, given what we talked about when people lose power, they look for a salesman who can tell them they can get the past back when everything will be perfect for them. But two things I think confound many of us. And I think even those that are Republicans that were, you know, once called moderate Republicans or Lincoln Republicans, here's the conundrum. Right after January 6th, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell both condemned Trump and hold him responsible. And then in five seconds, they have a swift and full retreat. That's part one of the question. Then we have Trump now with the 2025 project, making quite clear that he's going to turn the government into a strongman government. We have Trump having frightening comments about Mark Milley, who was the, served as the 20th chairman of the Joint Staff, and saying he's going to accuse him of treason and have him executed. So it's getting crazier and crazier. Why... Is he retaining this grip? Why isn't it that Republicans who even believe in the notions that Nixon had, did and Reagan did and all the sort of typical, why is Trump retaining this grip as he becomes crazier and crazier? As quickly as I can here, <laughs> there's a couple of things that, I, that we need to clarify. So remember that the 2025 project is not just about Trump. Mm. It's about Trump or someone like him. Okay, yeah. so that's important. So I'm going to talk about this as if it's Trump. But but as I say that word, you have to hear or someone like him because they're okay. quite articulate that this is not just Trump. They want to carry this forward regardless of who ends up at the top of their party. So so you pit, you hit on something that that is sort of my one of the things that bothers me most about this whole era, and that is that the Republicans in the Senate during Trump's term could have stopped him at any point they wanted to. And they didn't. And they didn't at first because they wanted his tax cuts, which have been extraordinary, put a ton of money back into corporations and back to the very wealthiest people in America. But they were also quite articulate about the fact, as Mitch McConnell said, and we have this in a quote from Texas Senator Ted Cruz, that when it came time to declare whether or not they thought Trump was guilty of what he was accused of in 2019, early 2020, of, of withholding congressionally approved money that was intended to help Ukraine fight off the Russian invasion of 2014, the Russian occupation. Um, Ted Cruz actually said, you know, not one of us believes that you're innocent. Not one of us. And McConnell, in, in a different speech or in a different conversation, said, this is not about the president. This is about the 2020 election. Mm. And similarly, right after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, McConnell voted to acquit Trump of that, he could almost Easily. certainly, yeah, and he almost certainly could have gotten a conviction. But, and he, then he came out and said, oh, well, he should be found guilty in other courts. 
once again, looking at the power of his own power in the Senate and trying not to tank the Republican brand. But what that did is it created a feedback loop in which, because leaders refused to condemn him, people, his base, never heard anything other than the fact he was set up, that he really won the election, that this was a witch hunt, all the things that Trump was feeding them. And now I think we're in a very different place where a number of those leaders are now afraid of their followers. And you see this even when they boo former President Trump when he talks about vaccines, for example. And you see it now with people like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson actually saying to Trump voters, They are lying to you and getting booed for doing it. Mm -hmm. So now I think we've got this thing where the leaders are afraid of their followers and don't dare speak up. And those followers are falling into another Eric Hoffer pattern in which if you have given yourself over to a strong man, Hoffer argues, I think persuasively, that the worse he behaves, the tighter you cling because you have to believe that he, the people he is hurting deserve it. And if you stop believing that, then you have to hold yourself to account for all the bad things that you have done. And you have, it's, it's, a, it's incredibly psychologically damaging. The, the image I always look to for this is of Narcissa in the Harry Potter books. The worse Voldemort treats her and her family, the tighter she clings because she can't psychologically give up the idea that she's been right all that time. She can't say, mm. no, I was wrong. So we're in this sort of doom loop over there, if you will. But if you didn't wedge yourself to him the way those MAGA Republicans did, you can, in fact, see a very different version of what's happening. All right, Heather. We have 10 minutes to cheer ourselves up. The title of your book is Democracy Awakening. And you say in the book that the risk of our democracy fading is on the table, but not inevitable. And there is an air of optimism in in your book. What is it? that you think we collectively need to do? And most importantly, what do we individually need to do? And that gives you this possibility of optimism that it is democracy awakening. As a historian, I always like to emphasize that the future is unwritten. There is no such thing as inevitability. Certainly Mm. some things are more probable than others, but the future remains unwritten. So I get very frustrated when people just sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, we're done. Because of course we're not done. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And, you know, just as an example of that, if we had been talking in January of 2022, would you or I have identified the Russian invasion of Ukraine as being a global game changer? Or would we have identified Volodymyr Zelensky's incredibly famous line, I don't need a ride, I need more ammunition, as being a game changer? You know, that's that's one man said one sentence and the world changed, right? Mm. It, it stiffened the backs of everybody who wanted to protect democracy. But we are, of course at a moment when we in America have to choose between whether or not we are going to strengthen and even expand our democracy or turn it over either to former President Donald Trump or, as I say, to somebody like him. I firmly believe that Americans will not give up their democracy because democracy is, in the end, the expression of what I consider the ultimate human project, the concept of self-determination, the fact that we want to be able to decide our own fates. But if that's not going to happen, what do we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, first of all, one of the things that seems to me has been stripped out of American political discourse really since the 1980s, and certainly is being stripped out of it in places like the, the social studies curriculum in Florida and in Oklahoma and in Texas, for example, right now. And that's the idea of agency. We have the power to determine the future. But how do I, you know, what do I mean by that? 
Well, if in fact it's true that the way we got to where we are is by the creation of a false reality that people were reacting to and that they were embracing and that they were voting for, one of the things we have to do is insist on a reality-based political discourse. We can no longer agree to look the other way when lawmakers especially, but when lawmakers and media figures are lying to us, are gaslighting us, are telling us things that are not true, or are even presenting the news in such a way that it is misleading enough that it gives a different impression than what actually happened. The other piece of that, though, is the thing that individuals can do is to take up oxygen themselves, to talk about things they care about, to talk about democracy, to talk about the principles at stake in, for example, the recent proposal of the Trump advisors going into 2024 to round up and deport 10 million uh, (laughs) either undocumented immigrants, asylum seekers, and it is legal to apply for asylum in the United States, or people who are here on humanitarian visas, or people who were born here to undocumented parents who have birthright citizenship. They're planning to, to deport 10 million of those people, but to put them in large camps before that happens. Mm. If that doesn't send chills down everybody's spine, it ought to. And that's a place where this is not a question of how you feel about the current laws at our border. It's a question of whether or not we want to overturn our laws, our constitution, and our humanity to try and corral 10 million people into large camps before deporting them. All right, so we talk, we take up oxygen, but also we contest elections at every stage of the game, from your local school board elections to your town offices, to your state elections, to your federal elections, and you make your voices heard. That's exactly how the radical right took power. It is entirely possible for the the rest of us, the liberal Americans who are both, and by liberal, that actually is a political stance, meaning you support democracy and want to support our institutions. It does not mean you're what Trump calls them the radical left thugs. It means that you believe in liberal democracy, mm. liberal meaning it protects individuals. We, all of us, can speak up at at every level of our government to take back those offices because that's where the real pieces of our democracy are put into place at the state level and its local school board level as well. There are plenty of ways for people really to speak up at this point and crucial to all of them is to remember that we are the political majority in this country by a lot. The, Mm. the, The reactionary political minority is between 20 and 30% of the country. It's actually not large. It's the rest of us who need to determine the future of this country. But the trick is many of those people in the rest of that majority don't speak up. They don't vote. They don't Mm. come out. They're cowed into silence. And now is the minute when we got to find our voices again. So that statement reminds me of a Yates quote that I've been thinking about a lot during these times. And the quote is, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Those that are passionate are willing to do what the rest of us are unwilling. We get lazy. We get lazy. And I I don't know whether we get lazy because we think we're power. 2025, project, that might wake people up to, we need to believe what they say they're going to do. You know, we want to think that, I guess it's rhetoric, but I'm saying for our listeners, Heather's shaking her head. It's not rhetoric. They're, they're serious about this. So let's, let, I, I feel badly we didn't get to talk about the difference between a journalist and a historian. The role of media, is it too late given the siloed way that we we live. But people will have to read the book, <laughs> which I think people should adopt. You know, to your point is adopting this book as a book club discussion as a basis for a conversation is a great idea. The question is, how do we cross aisles in having that conversation? Because so many of us live in our own bubble. So the... The way I do it is 
by always remembering that we are in a peculiarly warped period of American politics. I mean, you hear that and you think, you hear that we're divided and all that, and you think, oh, I don't dare talk to my crazy neighbor or whatever. But the truth is we're in a weird period where the vast majority of us and statistics will tell you tell you this: the vast majority of us want basic gun safety legislation. The vast majority of us want higher taxes on the very wealthy. The vast majority of us want reproductive health care. The vast majority of us want to address climate change. The vast majority of us want infrastructure laws. I mean, we actually share a ton of agreement with each other, but we have been divided by certain politicians. And one of the things I always try to do is to go back to those basic values, Mm -hmm. the basic values that I articulate in the third section of the book, but the basic values of our democracy, that we as individuals should get to have a say in our government. And anybody who's trying to keep that from us does not have our best interests at heart. We're not going to agree you know, you and I probably wouldn't sit here and, and agree about margin, marginal tax rates or about how we would adjust, you know, the, the the turnpikes. But that's what a democracy does. We get to talk about those things. The people who are trying to make sure we can't talk about those things are people who are trying to undermine our democracy. So I'm all about getting back to our fundamentals. You know, what does it mean to live in a country in which we get to have a say in our democracy the same way that Abraham Lincoln argued for and the same way that Teddy Roosevelt argued for and Eisenhower and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy? Those are our great heroes. We shouldn't be instead lionizing the enslavers and the neo-Nazis. With that, I'm going to close with a quote that you have in the book. Writing from Jim Crow America in the midst of the Depression, Black poet Langston Hughes in 1935 wrote, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free. And he called for those who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith in pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, that they might bring back our might and dream again. So, Heather, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for the book. You know, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a reason over a million people subscribe to your letters from an American. That, to me, is heartening. That means that there are people who want to deal in what you call fact-based reality. So thank you for everything that you've done. Keep writing, keep talking, and I will encourage all of us to keep listening. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Great, Heather. Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selleck. Our editor is Gino Cordone at PleasantPodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just the Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.